It's a joy to be here. I haven't seen your pastors since March of 98. We spent eight weeks together in what was then called the Missionary Learning Center. And I guess as he followed me from a distance, I followed them from a distance. And in the Lord's providence, he has allowed us to be. We live in Morgan's Point Resort, so about 45 minutes from here. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to share with you all today. There's a focus on health today. I mean, I'm looking at a group and we're concerned about our health. Uh, Gluten-free food, right? Organically grown, natural vitamin supplements. Now, a healthy organism continues to grow. Likewise, a healthy church also grows. And I think all would agree that the first church, the primitive church as it's called in the book of Acts, was a healthy church. Well, the same indicators of health in this first church, we can adapt them and configure them to Western Heights Baptist Church or to any church. And from Acts chapters 1 and 2, I'm just going to lift out three marks, three indicators of a healthy church. Those three indicators are simultaneous mission, a saved membership, and ongoing activity. Well, before I go a little more and explain what I mean by those marks, let's think a little bit about the overview, the panorama, the history of this first church in Acts 1 and 2. Because understanding the larger context will give greater sense to these marks of a healthy church. If you've read the Bible and I'm looking at people, I, most of you have a lot. You know that the book of Acts picks up where the book of Luke left off, part one and part two. And when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he picks up with the activity of the primitive church in the 10-day interval between the ascension of Christ and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, Jesus, when he rose again, he appeared how many days? 40 days, right? And so this is where the book of Acts picks up. In fact, it's interesting, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, which it ends the, his, the historical long books in the Old Testament, and Ezra chapter 1, which 2 Chronicles Ezra, Jesus' ascension is also a link. The books of 2 Chronicles and Ezra end and begin with the same thing. 
And Luke does the same thing because he ends in the Gospel of Luke with, with Jesus ascending and he picks up in the book of Acts with the same ascended Jesus. And these remaining 10 days after Jesus went up as they watched, they were spent in intensive prayer. And in the book of Acts, you'll notice if you'll pull on to verse 13 of chapter 1, verse 12, excuse me, they were united in prayer. And then you jump down to verse 15, it says in my Bible, I use the uh, Holman Christian Standard, it, the title is Matthias uh, is Chosen. And so what happened is they chose Matthias to replace Judas. And as Peter, as the Holy Spirit illuminated Peter, and you can read his speech, he sees from the scripture, he understood that they needed to replace uh, Judas. And so they did. And then when you get to Acts chapter 2, we've completed those 10 days. And now they're in one place. It says in chapter 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. They didn't yet know that that was going to be the day. But that was a significant Jewish feast. And so it's interesting, God chose that particular day to birth what we call now the church. And the one place they were in, it's possible they were in the same upper room, but they were all together. And as they're there together, this promised pouring out or baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred in verses 1 through 4. And it was apparently a very loud noise like a big windstorm and it got everybody's attention and so the crowds just came what happened because there's no indication that there was a storm or there would have been reason for this loud rushing wind like a tornado even or a cyclone well Peter Remember, we read about Peter, lastly, in the Gospels as the denying disciple, right? He denied three times. And now we see the transformation of Peter. Because verses 5 through 40, as you read through Acts chapter 2, they frame Peter's sermon as he uses that event as the opportunity to preach the good news. He explains what happened, and as you read through Acts chapter 2, you'll see that he interweaves the theme of fulfilled prophecy that occurred in front of their eyes. Many of them, it was a shock, I'm sure, to most of them. But God was actually doing prophecy right as they were there. And this same one that had denied knowing Christ in verse 36 now boldly declares, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. You get in that real part? You crucified. And 
It was 50 days earlier that they had crucified, or 53, that they had crucified Christ. And so it was very fresh on their minds. Whom you crucified, he's made him Lord and Messiah. And it says they were pierced to the heart. We've all been pierced at times. You just know you were wrong. And they said, what must we do? And Peter's word in verses 37 to 41, repent. Turn around. Make a U-turn. Turn away from your self-dominated life and turn to a God-dominated life. And it's interesting when I share that where I work right now in the jail, these men very clearly understand what a self-dominated life was and the results of that. In fact, yesterday we baptized about 40-something of them. It was really a special time. Repent! And interestingly enough, they were immediately baptized. When I, maybe the same for Bruce... When he was in Guatemala, in Brazil, they want to delay and delay and want to make sure it's a good profession, make sure it was right, they understood. But in, biblically, they didn't delay. They did it the same day. In verses 42 through 47, following that 3,000-person baptism, that um, records the generosity and growth in Jerusalem. And it concludes, interestingly, like, this healthy church... God added daily. And a church that's healthy, you don't have to have evangelism programs. You don't have to do all the things that we do. It's good. But when a church is healthy, it just grows because the Lord adds daily. And that's what I'm sure is the desire of Western Heights Baptist Church. That you want the Lord to add daily because you are a healthy church. Well, I want to focus, as I said, I just want to lift out three. I'm sure your pastor could find others. Any of you could read it, and the Lord might illuminate for you, and it would be equally valid. But I want to focus on three as I studied and prepared and prayed. And it's interesting, I've taken my wife, we've done a lot of doctors these days as she's been in the U.S., and Interestingly, how the doctor knows how to ask the right questions, right? And when she starts answering the doctor, I'm going, I didn't even know to answer that question. I didn't know to ask the question. And so, just as a physician will ask the right question in order to know what direction to go to isolate the cause of the sickness and decide on the course of treatment, well, the presence of these, th these three characteristics or lack thereof in the life and ministries of a local church can be used to evaluate the spiritual health of a church. And these three marks are quickly, I'm just going to call it, simultaneous mission, saved membership, and synchronized moments. And I'll explain what that means. First, I want to talk about the simultaneous mission of a healthy church. Turn with me to chapter 1, verse 8. Many of you have not memorized it. You're familiar with it. And in my version, it says, as Jesus spoke, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's key to notice the word, the conjunction, and. And means it's all the same time. Now, as you trace it through the book of Acts, it was a progressive thing. But as we understand it now, it's a simultaneous activity. It's not just one to the exclusion of the others. It's all of them. Now, they did expand. He said, Jerusalem, Judea. Jerusalem's where you live. Judea is your state, your nation, the, the people kind of like you. And then Samaria are the people that are not so much like you, but they have the same language. And then the ends of the earth. Well, this progression uh, chronologically was very clear in the book of Acts. Acts 3 to 7, chapters 3 to 7, records how the early church spread throughout Jerusalem and I'm sure the, little, the neighboring area. And then they scattered in Judea and Samaria, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, because of persecution. You know, they were supposed to go out and they didn't, and so God scattered them. God uses persecution to scatter the church, to help us do what we're supposed to do. Well, in Acts chapter 10, Peter finally understood that God's love was for all people. And so when the Gentile centurion Cornelius sent people to Peter because God told them, Peter realized, okay, it's now for the Gentiles too. And in that mindset in that time, it was Jews and everyone else, right? You're either a Jew or a Gentile. We see, and as you go through the book of Acts in chapter 9, Paul saved, and then Gentile salvation is defended and accepted in Acts 11, and then Barnabas and Saul begin their first missionary journey in Acts 12. And the word expands to the end of the earth as it was in their days. Well, for the, today's church, the focus should be the same at the same time. First, what is our Jerusalem? Well, it's people with the same cultural background, the same language. They kind of live near us, typically. And a Southern Baptist, that typically will be expressed in evangelism in and around the church. And the parts of your state and region, you'll do that often with your association. That's your, that's our Jerusalem. Now, well, what is Judea? I'm going to say Judea is Americans, other Americans in the USA, or second and third generation immigrants who... Yeah, they, made, they don't even know the language from where their parents came or their grandparents came. They're Americans. And for Southern Baptists, this is typically what the State Association does and the North American Mission Board will reach our Judea. Well, what is Samaria? In Jesus' time, they spoke the same language, but they were very different in many other ways. Well, I would define them as immigrant communities, especially in the larger cities. In fact, in the USA, I was studying a site called Wallet Hub, and it said the top 12 USA cities in overall uh, ethnic diversity, four of the eight are in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Makes sense, doesn't it? 
four of the eight. And six of the remaining eight are in California. California's got the world there. And then number six is New York City, and number 12 is our own Houston. Well, reaching our Samaria today among Southern Baptists is typically done on the local level as a church targets a group. For example, my home church, Meridian Baptist, they've had a Vietnamese congregation for, they had it before I joined there in 1978. They also have an Arabic uh, community. And then on the associational level, churches will do it themselves. They'll work together and try to reach, reach a group. And they'll do it on the state level again with the North American Mission Board. Well, reaching the ends of the earth through, as a Southern Baptist, has been historically uh, done through the International Mission Board. That's what your pastor did. That's what I did. We went to our ends of the earth where the Lord directed us to go. But now, there's another, there's another thinking in that, is you win immigrants or exiles and you send them back to where they came from. That was, by the way, that was God's strategy in the day of Pentecost, wasn't it? He had brought Jews from all over, and we don't know how many of those 3,000 were in Jerusalem, but we know that some of them weren't. And so God started the whole thing by winning some that day, and they went back to their culture, their people, their towns, the 14 or so you read in the, as they started speaking those languages and numbering them off. Well, I don't think Bruce knows them, but Andy and Cindy Kennedy were colleagues of mine, and they're still with the International Mission Board. They were in Brazil for years. Now they're in Germany, and they're reaching immigrants in Germany. And they had a baptism not too long ago. Over 20 were Muslim. They couldn't even show their pictures. But as those are one and they go back, they're much more effective than you or I trying to go as the international. And that's what they're doing. They're planting and the purpose is to plant it, to win them, and to go back. Well, whether winning nations in the USA and sending them back, or going to the ends of the earth, places today like India, China, the Islamic world, that's the end of the earth, isn't it? As far as Jesus Christ is concerned, and hearing openly about the gospel, or even translating the Bible in places like Brazil. Brazil, Brazil because of the hundreds of Indian tribes, still has the largest number of untranslated languages in the world in one country. There's something called the 1040 window, 10 degrees to 40 degrees north of the equator. That's where many of the quote-unquote unreached, and you might say the ends of the earth. Well, then I have a question. Western Heights. How is the simultaneous practice of the gospel? How are you doing here? Those that are like you. Those that speak English but are very different from you. And around the world. I know that you give. You're a Southern Baptist church. You support the cooperative program. But how do you do it in other ways? And that's something for Western Heights to ask herself. Well, the first mark of a healthy church 
is simultaneous mission. You're looking at home and you're going around the world. And it's not one excluding the other. It's, an, it's, a, it's a global focus. Second mark of a healthy church is a saved membership. Saved membership. Let's go to chapter 2 and verse 41. Actually, let's start with verse 36 because this is where Peter is concluding. You know, he's got all their attention because the day of Pentecost has come and they've come from all over the city and he's got them. And so he's preached this great sermon explaining what happened and to his Jewish listeners, they understood when he talked about Joel and fulfilling of the prophecy of Joel. Now let's look what he says in verse 36. And we've, I want to start with that one. Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And isn't that what God does? You know, the last thing we saw of Peter before the book of Acts, he was denying Christ and just kind of, faded away a little bit. But now here he is in front of all of them. You crucified him. May have been very well the same soldiers that were there. But he goes on as he boldly identifies. And when it says, when they heard this, verse 37, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? And by saying that, they were agreeing. They understood. They knew that something needed to change. So what do we do? Where do we, what's, our, what, what's our next step? And Peter says one word, repent. Repent. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of heart and mind that results in a change of life. When someone repents, they realize that I was going on the lifestyle that I chose. I was in charge. I was fine and happy, or maybe not, but who called the shots was me. I may have even been a person in church and knew lots about God. I mean, Peter was speaking to people. Remember this context. He's speaking to religious people. They have, they have traveled and they didn't just buy a plane ticket and get the three-hour plane ride. You know, for you to come to Jerusalem from all those cities they traveled in, it was not uh, just a, I'll take a, go take a shower and let's jump in the car. It was a trip. And these are people who knew they were dedicated to God. They were following Him and worshiping Him to the best that they understood. Now, for many of them, they may have heard, you know, the, Jesus may have filtered out 
in the three years, but he may not have. We don't know. We do know is that God had brought people from all over for that festival. And these were people that were God seekers. They were interested in the things of God. In fact, they were trying to please him. Now, some of them, they may have done it because they were trying to earn God's favor by showing God how good they were. There's something in Brazil called the, the, Fest, the Syria Festival. We were part, I was, it's the biggest celebration of Catholic faith in the world. And every Sunday, the second Sunday in October, people will start in some cases a week before. And they're on a pilgrimage. And they're, it's all about coming to this statue of Mary and Jesus that supposedly some miraculous things occurred with it. And so they just, they come. And they'll come on their, some of them will come on their knees. From my, you saw that down in Guatemala. It's got a different name, but it's kind of the same, it's the same Catholic celebration. And they're people. And yet, the whole focus is you want to get to this rope. Rope of four strands, and you want to grab a hold of that rope, and you want to follow after the statue of Mary and Jesus for a couple miles. And that's the whole thing. But it's interesting, three different years, we, I was involved in evangelism projects. And one, Sunday, one year, we, we took them right down to it. And it was interesting because you see the people grabbing on the rope. And as they grabbed on the rope, their faces were not faces of relief and faces that I found it. They were just exhausted, tired, sweaty, dirty. They had done their obligation to God. Well, some of these people that Peter was speaking to may have been exactly that way. But he was speaking to people who had head knowledge. They knew enough of the Bible that this was what they needed to do. And so they were there. And yet Peter said, repent. You've got to turn away from your religious lifestyle. You've got to turn away from trusting in what you've done. You've got to turn away from, because you've been in church all your life and you've always given your tithe and you're the same church that granddaddy was, that you're going to go to heaven. You know, it's, we've never changed. Human nature has never changed. Peter said you've got to repent. It's not church membership in and of itself. It's not who you are, it's not what you've done that gets you to heaven. Repent. You realize that I was in charge of my life. And I know where I am right now. And Lord, right now, I'm going to do a U-turn. I'm going to stop living my self-dominated life. I'm going to stop being in charge. I'm going to deny myself and follow you.
whatever that is for you. As Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you, I'm going to seek first from this day on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, when, like I said, when I preached that, I, we had a really interesting experience when we baptized him because I'd been taking my wife to the doctor and actually, I didn't, when I got back that day, I have three people that are volunteers that can do that kind of thing. And they already had done all the baptism. <laughs> I, was, I was delighted. I was shocked because I didn't expect that they would get it done. But these three and volunteers were just so, they just, they did it. They, and one of them, the one that did the baptizing, she was a missionary down in Mexico. It was just Great. But then I had a chance to, to encourage him afterwards and talk to him. And gentlemen, if, if you will let your light shine, we'll see God revolutionize this place from the inside out. Repent. Because these men, they know why they're in prison. And they've seen the results of it. And that's what we need to do. We need to get to the end of ourselves. That's salvation. It starts with repentance. Turning away from who I am, who I was, what I was trusting. Letting go of it all. Putting it all at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, you're it. A saved membership. Well, and I, why do I say that? Because sadly, and I know your pastor knows that, how many churches today have so many folks, they just think they're saved. In fact, myself and my wife are two examples of that. I was baptized three times in the Methodist church before I went to a Bob. Anybody remember the chaplain of Bourbon Street, Bob Harrington? He preached a crusade in San Diego in 73, and that's where I know that I received the Lord. My wife, she was saved her first year at Word of Life Bible College. She was raised in church, too. You know, you can be missionaries. And I remember one of my, well, you can be a seminary student. I don't know if your pastor had that. I had one uh, colleague in the master's and his wife. She, this is pastor's daughter. And she was saved in seminary. Came to know the Lord. Well, are you saved? Do you know that you know that when you close your eyes in this life, You'll open them up as you're being escorted by his angels to the very presence of God. Some of these guys that were baptized yesterday, they, well, I was already done it, you know, but I see where my life's done. One guy, you know, I was done, baptized when I was a teenager, but the last 30 years and look where I'm at. I said, that's between you and God. All that matters is, you know, if this is something you need to do for your walk with him, I'm fine with it. Are you sure? Do you know that you know? Well, that's a healthy church. It's a saved membership. Now, I'm looking at a lot of folks. Some of you have been members here for a long, long time. My granddaddy got saved when he was 67 years old. I don't remember who he said he was watching on TV. But he was watching some of... Uh, 
Oral Roberts, I think, whoever it was, he was watching them. And he said he fell down on his knees in his living room. And my granddaddy was a saved and transformed man. Um, so I, I trust, I hope, but each of you in your heart of hearts, if you're not sure that you're sure, then it's time to make sure. And, it, you know, you don't get into heaven because of pedigree. You don't be, get into heaven because, well, you paid for those five benches there. You don't get to heaven because you can tell the pastor, well, you remember what happened in the first pastor when he came here. Okay? We don't get to heaven by our family lineage. Doesn't matter how many preachers you had in your family. We get to heaven when we personally encounter Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, and trust Him as our Savior and Lord. Now, am I here because I'm seeing lots of wicked, reprobate sinners? No. But God knows you, and God loves you. And so that's probably, I trust most, I'm maybe speaking to the choir. Repent. Trust Him. So the marks of a healthy church, they're a simultaneous mission. They're on mission around the corner, around, around the ends of the earth. Then they're a saved membership. They're children of God, and they do it because of gratitude. God saved them, and I just want to serve them. The third mark of a healthy church. I'm, just, I'm calling it synchronized moments. Maybe a little preachy, but it... The S and M fit together real nice. And I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 42 of chapter 2. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Well, they had four things going on, four activities. They were all working together. They were synchronized. And there were four distinct expressions of their walk with God. First one, it says that they were uh, devoted to the apostles' teaching. I'm going to call that doctrine. I'm going to call that an internal moment. Well, this word teaching can be translated instruction or doctrine. And doctrine can be defined as a belief or a set of beliefs held and, held and taught by a group. Well, the primitive church was strong in doctrine, church in the New Testament. When the church met, the leaders, the apostles would teach. You can read through the New Testament. You can look in Matthew 16, 16, John 1, John 6, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 6, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Colossians 2, and we see doctrine. Now, here's a great summary of New Testament doctrine. 1 Timothy 3, 16 says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. He, Jesus Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's doctrine. That was what they were as the primitive church. That was the essence of what they believed about Jesus Christ. Well, the first synchronized moment in the primitive church was doctrine. 
Now today, that means a strong teaching ministry. It was great to see the children's sermon. But I think sometimes the adults get more out of the children's sermon than the children's do. Um, and our guide as conservative Southern Baptists is what's called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So that's what we are doctrinally. That we, what we teach and preach, typically you can find it somewhere fitting inside that declaration of who we are. Well, how would you say your doctrine is taught here? By watching your pastor from a distance, I'm confident that he's a good teacher and preacher. And you have good doctrine. So that's internal movement. The doctrine's good. How about fellowship? Fellowship. Look at verse 42. It says, They devoted them to themselves, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. I tell you, Baptists are good at that one. At least in the outward eating part, right? Well, fellowship, koinonia, from the original, means association, communion, fellowship, close relation. You can translate it with generosity, fellow feeling, sign of fellowship, gift, or even by participation and sharing. Well, the word koinonia, this fellowship, is sprinkled, peppered throughout the New Testament. And it suggests a close relationship based on a common experience of God's undeserved favor. And you're forever, as you are part of the forever family, because you share kingdom values and activities. That kind of relationship leads to sharing with others. For example, all of us here, we all have the same hope of heaven, the same joys, the same hatred of sin, the same enemies. The, we should have the same subject of conversation, the same prayers. We should be united in our feelings and in our interests and in our dangers and our conflict, our opinions and our hope for life beyond. I know and I'm sure it was the same for him in Guatemala when we would come to Brazil for our mission meeting. Boy, it was just a special, precious time to meet with other missionaries all throughout Brazil and then eastern South America. And then as I work with these jail volunteers, they are a weird group. Most people are afraid to go to the jail. But when you see these, I've got volunteers that have been doing jail ministry for 20 years. I got one guy, he'd been away, Mr. Jerry Edens. He was at our house last night. He had gone to New Mexico to sell his house, and when I brought him down to where we were having a, what was called a faith dorm, and when I sat him down there with those 50 guys, he said, you just don't know how glad I am to be back here. That's weird, for if you've never done it. But these men, in some case women, they have as much a call to jail as, as a missionary does. It's just, it's koinonia, it's fellowship. Well, what does koinonia look like out here? Look like here? Outside of maybe you've got your church suppers and things with food. What is that true bonding, one-on-one -on -one communion, fellowship? That was the second mark. The third example is doctrine, is fellowship. And then, as he said in verse 32, breaking of bread. Well, breaking of bread, the word literally means break in the original. And in Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, same word, and distributed it to them. This is the Lord's Supper, what we call now the Lord's Supper. Jesus with the, 
with the twelve. And then the same phrase here in Acts 2.42 also appears in Luke 24.35. Remember the two disciples walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus? And they stopped for the night. And Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, same word, and began giving it to them. That's when they recognized him and he was gone. Well, breaking bread suggests here in Luke, that the Lord's Supper was apparently part of the shared meal that they, would, that they would have in their fellowship. They would conclude their meal uh, by remembering what Jesus did for them in chapter 42 and verse 46. Now this shared meal, at least in the Corinthian church, appeared to have been a weekly celebration as part of their service on the first day of the week. And then Jude 12 and 2 Peter 2.13 also refer to these meals, and they call them love feasts. Well, this noble practice of honoring and remembering what Jesus did at the Corinthian church deteriorated. In fact, it got so abused that some would come and get drunk at church. Others wouldn't get part of the meal and the result was the discipline of the Lord, in some case calling some believers home because of the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Now, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? It's to proclaim His death till He comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. In other verses, He says you need to do it worthily. You need to examine yourself. I'm not being a hypocrite when I take the Lord's Supper. Because if we do it without examining ourselves, in verse 29 in that church, God disciplines. And God's discipline was so, so intense in, those first, in that first century to preserve the purity of the church, God actually took some of them home. They died early because they took the Lord's Supper without examining themselves. And how often are you supposed to do the Lord's Supper? Well, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. as often as you eat. So as we understand it today, that's determined by the, local, by the local church. However the pastor in the church does it, that's as often as they'll observe it. There's no do it every time, every week, every month, every year, whatever. Well, breaking of the bread. That's a time for reflection, examination. I remember once I was helping serve the Lord's Supper in my home church. And all of a sudden the Lord started speaking to me and I served the supper, but I couldn't take it. You just, I didn't, I was just, I couldn't do it. So that's a great, that's a great moment in the Lord's Supper is because you get a chance to examine yourself. Lord, am I where I need to be? Is there anything I need to take care of? And finally, prayer. It says in verse 42, and to prayers. Well, Jesus tells us how to pray, right? Not the words in and of themselves, but what did he say in Matthew 6? He says, pray in this way, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I'll never remember 
The Lord gave us an opportunity. My wife and I, our last year in Brazil, we were down in southern Brazil, and we, we got to teach English to prisoner, men prisoners in Brazil. And it was incredible. We would begin and end with the Lord's Prayer in English and in Portuguese. And you've never, I'd never heard the Lord's Prayer so fervently. Remember the first time we did it. I, I, I think tears came to my eyes. The, it was just something. The Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer, again, it's not the words. It's a model for us to pray by. And so that's, if, if prayer has not been a part of what you do, then follow His model. Because they said, teach us how to pray. Because they saw Jesus. Jesus' prayer was just a part of his life. He would often get up early. They would. He needed prayer. Well, what are the marks of a healthy church? They're a church that's on simultaneous mission. They're focused around the corner, to the ends of the earth, and all that's in between. Very grateful that as Southern Baptists we have that opportunity. But that our church, each of us, that needs to be our focus here and around. Secondly, a saved membership. Churches sadly are full of those who have never repented and given their hearts and lives to Christ. And then there's some synchronized movements, things going on at the same time. Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of the bread, and prayer. How does Western Heights practice that? Because that's what makes a healthy church as they're applied. How do you, you know, the, the, the health of the body... It only takes one to make it six. That's, what, that's how cancer starts, right? One bad cell. So are you a healthy Christian? And if so, how are you contributing to the health of Western Heights Baptist Church? I'm going to ask your pastor to give the invitation. He knows his flock and gives as the Lord leads him, pastor.